All right, church. Well, welcome, everybody. Let's take our Bibles together, if we could. And we're going to open up to the first few pages of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. Let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of Genesis chapter 1. It's 2020. I'm beginning a new series uh, today entitled Brave in the New World. And I'll just tell you up front, my goal for this series is to equip you as best I can to address some important topics that are circulating in our world. And my goal is to encourage you to embrace some counter-cultural biblical principles on these topics. These are the topics that we'll cover in the next five weeks. Today we'll talk about gender. Next week we'll talk about marriage, sexuality, sanctity of life, and then finally marijuana or more generally drug use. Marijuana has been legalized recently in our state and we need to think that through and understand what the Bible says about not just marijuana but other drug use and these are hot button topics in our world right now and and we need to think through them biblically don't we now church don't we now and maybe you have some questions and I'm I'm happy to field those as we go throughout this series and you can email me as we have just uh, time to talk maybe outside of the Sunday morning too What's required for these topics that we're dealing with in the next five weeks, let me just tell you uh, at the outset here, what's required is conviction about these things and biblical understanding that informs our conviction. But, uh, you know, I'm going to preach beyond just convictionally and biblically. I want you to be more than just biblical and convictional with these matters, okay? I'm going to preach to your courage as a Christian. I want you to be more, and this is part of being biblical, more than just convictional, more than just biblical. I want us as a church to be brave in this new world. Brave about our convictions, about what we have as truth that God has given us. Why wouldn't we be courageous if we have this truth that God has given to us? You know, being, being convictional is is the easier part of that because we can, I think, and this is a temptation for all of us, kind of cloister together in our little church community and be quiet about our convictions. That's the easier way. The harder way, what's required of us in this world is courage. What's required of us in this world is convictional courage. What's required of us in this world is bravery and boldness and a backbone that actually believes and lives out these truths and speaks about these truths. You guys know, I've said this before, and this is kind of a rallying cry for us with our Harvest Kids. You know, what we're doing here is we're raising up an army of Jesus followers, aren't we now? An army. And I mean, this goes without saying. Let me just state the obvious. By the way, we're talking about gender today. I'm going to state the obvious a lot today, okay? Get ready for it. But let me just state the obvious about raising up an army. If we're going to raise up an army, they need to be brave. Armies are brave, aren't they now? They need to be brave in this world that is very much counter the culture of the Bible and counter the scriptures of the, the, the truths that we believe. We're not raising up an army of mealy-mouthed and scaredy-cat Christians. There's enough of that in this world. We want young people who grow up to be 
courageous and bold in their faith. And, and by the way, that doesn't mean, when I say bravery, when I say courage, I, I'm not talking about cold-hearted, rash, insensitive Christianity. That's not brave. That's reckless. And it's unchristlike. I, what I'm talking about ultimately here is a Christ-like boldness. Jesus was kind. Jesus was compassionate to those who were stuck in patterns of sin and needed help to get out of that. But, but Jesus was bold. Jesus was confident. Jesus was courageous. And so that's what we're raising up here with our Harvest Kids. Kids who are committed to Christ. Kids who are committed to the scriptures. Kids who are confident and convictional and confessional in their faith. And, and this goes without saying too, but I'm going to say it anyway. If we're going to raise up kids like that, you better be those kinds of parents. Right now? Not just parents, too. we got grandparents in the room. we got Harvest Kids teachers. This is a learned behavior, bravery. So if you're a scaredy-cat Christian, you're going to raise up scaredy-cat Christians. We need to be brave in our assertions of the truth and our affirmation of the truth in this new world. Are you with me, church? Are you with me now? That's my introduction to this series. Let me transition now and introduce the message today. Today's message is about gender. It's about gender. And if there's any topic in our world that we need to be both brave and also kind-hearted, it's this issue of gender right now. And I, I want you all to know I have, oh, I have prayed this week and agonized that the Lord would help me to strike the right tone for today and to get this right because there's so much confusion in our world right now. And if you've been following what's happening in our country in the last five to 10 years and, and, and seeing what's going on, this, this is a topic that is both infuriating and heartbreaking what's happening. And, and a lot of what I'm going to say is going to be stating the obvious. If I, if, if I were to preach what I'm going to preach today, 25 years ago, you know, when I was a teenager growing up in this world, you know, a lot of the people in the church would have been like, yeah. Of course, a boy is a boy, a girl is a girl. Why is he talking about this? Why is this so confusing? But, I mean, that's not the world. That's not the new world that we live in right now. We're dealing with things like gender fluidity and gender non-binary. We're dealing with things like, seriously, we're dealing with things like puberty blockers being prescribed to children. We're dealing with things like drag queen story hour in our public libraries. We're dealing, thing, we're dealing with things like Bruce Jenner being named Woman of the Year by Glamour Magazine. If I was a woman, I would be insulted by that. A man as Woman of the Year? How does that make sense? Are there not enough good women out there to name Woman of the Year? It's a new world we live in. And what's required of us is convictional, biblical, Bravery. What does the Bible say about these things? What does the Bible say about gender? What do we need to be brave about, Pastor Tony? I'll give you five things this morning. Five answers to this question. What does the Bible teach about gender? I'm going to give you today five blinding flashes of the obvious. And you know, nothing I'm going to say today, I don't think you're going to be like, wow, I didn't see that in the Bible. No, it's there. And most of you know it's there. But I think more than anything, I, I, it just needs to be said. And it needs to be said by the pastor in the pulpit 
not just for the benefit of those of you who already believe it, but for those who don't and for the young people in our church that are growing up in this church. So here we go. What does the Bible teach about gender? Five things. Let's start here. Number one, God created both male and female in his image. I think we have to start here. We have to start with creation. We have to start in Genesis 1. It's great that, you know, we don't have to go that far in the Bible before God covers gender. It's in the first page, in Genesis 1, verse 27. And we've got to start here, too, because, you know, as we talk about male and female and humanity at large, there is a sameness and there is a differentness in who we are as human beings, male and female. Okay? We are the same. We are both homo sapiens, Right? We're more like each other than we are like any other animal species. But, but, I mean, here's another blinding flash of the obvious. Men and women are different, aren't they now? Did you learn that in your first 48 hours of marriage? <laughs> Men and women are different. So I'm going to, I don't know who said that, but amen, brother. <laughs> I want to focus on our sameness first because this is so important. We are both created in the image of God. Psalm 100 verse 3 says this. It says, know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are not allowed to change the bodies that God has given us into something that God didn't make us to be. That is so important. He, we belong to him. He created us. And Psalm 100 verse 3, that's an obvious allusion there to Genesis 1 and God's creative work of mankind. Genesis chapter 1 records God creating everything. What did God create? Everything. He created everything. He created day and night. He created the stars and the planets. He created the flora and the fauna of our planet. God created sea creatures and land creatures and sky creatures. God created land and sea, evening and morning, light and darkness. And as part of that, even, even before God created mankind, there was gender. I want, I want you all to see that. Because in verse 22 of chapter 1, speaking to the animal kingdom, speaking to non-human creatures, God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the sea and let the birds multiply on the earth. Part of God's creative act with animals involved differentiating between male and female in order to procreate. Gender is present in the animal kingdom. But I think it's instructive to know that even though that's the case at the beginning of the, first, of the sixth day, it wasn't until later in the sixth day as God created man that we first get these words, male and female. The Hebrew words are zakar for male and then nakeva for female. And, and this is what it says. This is verse 27. So God created man. Mankind, humanity, in his own image, in the image of God, he created him. And this is key right here. Male and female, he created them. In his image, we are both male and female, image bearers of God. That is huge. That is, that is a huge theological point. And God even says that, is, records it. The actual words of, of God are recorded in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and over all the creeping things that creep upon the earth. So humans are like animals, like the animals that God created, but they are qualitatively different. Everybody got that? 
We are. We're made in God's image. We have the, you know, what does that mean to be made in God's image? We have the capacity to know God, to have a relationship with God. We have consciences. We are conscious of things like eternity and the, the, the reality that eternity is in our hearts is something that's biblical as well, that we're going to live forever somewhere or another, either in the presence of God or away from God. That's different than the animals. We have a relationship with God we, that, that the animals cannot have. We have a knowledge about God that the other animals in the world cannot have. We have eternity in our soul. By the way, let me just say this. The only person who is scarier in our world than the person that obliterates gender is the person that obliterates the distinction between man and the animals. That person is truly terrifying. A rat is a pig, is a dog, is a boy, says the animal rights group called PETA, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animal Animals. A rat is a pig, is a dog, is a boy. Is that true? No, it's not true. And that's a lie. Calm down, Tony. <laughs> of course it's not true. And we need to be brave enough in our world to say publicly that that's not true. Unlike animals in the animal kingdom, God made human beings in his image and notice the imago Dei language is not limited to one gender or the other in verse 27. God made man. God made ha-adam from the adama, the ground. God took dust, he took dirt, and he made man. He made mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Both male and female, he created them in his image. The Nashville statement says it this way. I want you to know that as your pastor, I affirm this statement. I've even signed it online, and you can go and you can do that too as well at the website for the Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. And here's what the Nashville statement says in Article 3, and I affirm this. We affirm that God created Adam and Eve, the first human beings in his own image, equal before God as persons, and distinct as male and female. We deny that the divinely ordained differences between male and female, and there are differences, render them unequal in dignity or worth before the Lord. I affirm that. I affirm that. And speaking of this, this beautiful thing about God creating mankind in his image, men and women both, our Kent Hughes says this. I, I love this quote. He says, consider this for a moment. Though you could travel a hundred times the speed of light, past countless yellow-orange stars to the edge of the galaxy and swoop down to the fiery glow located a few hundred light years below the plane of the Milky Way, wouldn't that be awesome? Wouldn't you love to do that right now? Just explore all of God's wonderful creation? Though you could slow to examine the host of hot young stars, luminous among the gas and the dust, though you could observe close up the proto-stars, poised to burst forth from their dusty cocoons, though you could witness a star's birth in all your stellar journeys, you would never see anything equal to the birth and the wonder of a human being. And all the parents in this room said, Amen. For the tiny baby girl or boy is the apex of God's creation, his last and greatest magnum opus. That's the Imago Dei. That's us being made in the image of God. That's who we are as human. 
So we've got to start there with gender. God created both male and female in his image. Write this down as number two. Here's the second truth about gender. Also, God created gender as a human good. It is a good thing. And I'll talk about why. Some of you might say, well, what's good about it? Pastor Tony, tell us why it's good. Well, let me state the obvious here. The human good that God created gender for, at least partly, is procreation. The male provides the sperm that fertilizes. The female provides the egg that is fertilized. Again, stating the obvious, sperm can't fertilize sperm, and an egg can't fertilize itself. That's even true in the animal kingdom. Except in the animal kingdom, marriage is non-existent, and monogamy, if I can use that term, is so rare it's negligible. Not so for humans. God created human beings to have monogamous, heterosexual, marital relations. God created humans to have monogamous, heterosexual, marital relations, i.e. sex. Why did he do that? Why did he create that? So that we could procreate, so that we could reproduce, so that we could fulfill the mandate that God gave us in Genesis 1, 28. Look at verse 28. What's the next thing God tells humans to do? God blessed them, and he, he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the earth and over every living thing that moves on the earth. In other words, let me paraphrase, make babies. That's what God told us to do. Make babies and populate the earth with more and more babies that can dominate over the other, the lesser animals, if you want to say it that way, in the animal kingdom. You know, one of the things that I think is lost in this world where everybody's talking about gender fluidity and same-sex marriage is that God created gender and he created marriage to perpetuate the species. I think that's so important. Marriage is that thing that God created to, to bring two people together, male and female, to create these little imago Dei creatures that come from us to populate the earth. And that's not possible in a same-sex union. Everybody with me? Not without some very creative biological maneuvering. In other words, God created gender and sexuality for procreation. Now, is marriage only about procreation? Some of you might ask that. Is, it, is that the only reason for marriage? No. Are marriages invalidated if they don't produce offspring? No. No. Sonia and I have dealt with infertility issues. Other people have dealt with infertility issues. Other people get married beyond the years of childbearing. That doesn't invalidate their marriage or make it unbiblical. And we see even in Genesis 2, you know, you look at Genesis 1, that's kind of, you know, the, the macro view of God's creative work throughout the seven days of creation. And then you get this, this micro view in Genesis 2 when you see God creating man and woman and bringing the woman to the man. And it's, it's really very personal and beautiful, Genesis 2, what takes place there. And we see in Genesis 2 that one of the reasons that God gave Eve to Adam is, is because why? It's not good for man to be alone. It's, it's good for them to be together. So marriage is both a means of procreation. It's also a means of companionship that God has given us. Procreation is primary. I think we need to remember that. I, th I think I don't want that to get lost in this discussion because right now in our world, it's like anything goes marriage. If you love somebody, you should be able to marry them without any thought of like, okay, well, what about what's the purpose in it? What was God's initial design for it? 
And part of that, wrapped up in that, is God's desire to populate the planet so that we could have children, so that we could have nuclear families that raise children. That's not the only reason, though. Eve is called a helpmate to Adam in Genesis 2. There's, there's a helping that's at work, too. There's, there's, there's a sense in which man and woman together is better than man and woman separate because they, they help each other. That word for helpmate for Eve is, is the Hebrew word ezer, and it's a great, strong, beautiful word for women. They live life together. They do life together, man and woman. And by the way, let me say this. Let me just speak to gender, speak to the ladies in this room. This is, this is kind of dangerous, but I'm going to say it anyway. Ladies of Harvest Decatur, you should be proud to be a woman. You should be proud. God created you that way. You are made in the image of God as a woman. And God did not make a mistake when he made you a woman. And men in this room, this is, this is true for you too. You should be proud to be a man made in the image of God. And that's different from women and that's good. It's good the way that God did that and intended that. And let me just speak to the women for a second. Only women can be mothers. You should be proud of that, women of Harvest Decatur. Only women can bear children. Only women can be wives. Only women can mother children. You should be proud of that. And you should not envy a man. And men should not envy women. And women should not want to be men. And men should not want to be women. There is dignity and there is honor and there is goodness in the way that God created you. Just a historical footnote for you here. There have been... In our country, there have been three different movements of what I'll call feminism. There's been first wave, second wave, third wave feminism. And, you know, the the first wave of feminism came shortly after the Civil War. And, you know, I, I, I think just looking back on that time period, most of what was involved in that movement was right. And it brought about a moral good in this country. You know, uh, female suffrage was a big part of that feminism and equal treatment of men and women was a big part of that. And there were also um, some protests against men who were abusive and men who would abuse alcohol and other things like that. I think most of that first wave feminism we would agree with and brought about a moral good in this country. But then came second wave feminism. And this was after World War II. This is the mid to late 20th century. And and I'll, I'll be frank. Most of that second wave feminism is immoral and it confuses what is a woman and what is right about femininity. It was characterized by people like Gloria Steinem who said, we now have become the men we always wanted to marry. Is that the goal of feminism, that you become the men that you wanted to marry? That's a perversion of femininity. Another second wave feminist, a person named Betty Friedan, maybe some of you are familiar with this. She compared the life of a modern housewife to a person who is trapped in a concentration camp. I'm not making this up. You can read this for yourself in her book, The Feminine Mystique. 
She said women who adjust as housewives, who grow up wanting to be just a housewife, are, just, are in just as much danger as the millions who walk to their own death in the concentration camps. They are suffering slow death of mind and spirit. What do you all think about that, ladies? I sent that quote to my mom yesterday. She was not impressed with that quote. And then I, can you tell I'm a mama's boy? And then I thanked her for staying home. And I think the Lord knew I needed more vigilance than most kids. And I know that's not possible for every woman in this room, every woman in the Christian community to be a housewife, but I just want to affirm those of you who are housewives, you are dedicating yourself to something good and something right. So second wave feminism too, I'll just tell you, it was, it was demonstrably pro-abortion, it was demonstrably anti-family, still is, it's demonstrably anti-scriptural in its convictions, and it's qu- it was quite different from first wave feminism. Al Mollery says it this way, he says, many of the most active and influential early feminists, such as Susan B. Anthony, were not only not pro-abortion, they were avidly against abortion. Have y'all heard that before? Do y'all know that? Many of these early so-called first wave feminists understood that abortion is the revenge of the male against female because of her reproductive capacity. In this light, abortion is often understood to be violence inflicted upon women by men who do not want to take responsibility for their offspring. That is still going on today. That's not, that stream of thought that was part of first wave feminism is not part of second wave feminism. Actually, there's evidence to show that second wave feminists have have excluded pro-life advocates in their ranks. Now we have this thing in our day which is called third wave feminism. And third wave feminism is ideologically incompatible with second wave feminism and they're not getting along with each other third wave feminism embraces transgender ideology embraces the idea of a person like bruce jenner being woman of the year third wave feminism is okay with men who identify as women and compete in women's sports i do not get that Even someone as progressive as Martina Navratilova has been ostracized and criticized by some publicly because she had the audacity to say that only biological women should compete in women's sports. Oh, the audacity to say that. What's a girl to do in a world like this? Seriously, what's a a father of a daughter to do in a world like this? What's a Christian to do in a world like this? Here's my advice to you. My advice to you is to hold fast to the truths of of the scriptures and what the scriptures say about you and let that anchor you as you venture out into this world that is unstable and full of confusion and tumult. I don't have a daughter. Some of my best friends in this church have daughters. If I had a daughter, I would tell her, Hold fast to the truths of the scriptures and what God says about you and let that anchor who you are. Amen. Can can I get a, ladies, can I get a feminine amen? Can you just fill this room for a second, would you now? I like that. 
Write this down as number three. Here's a third truth about gender from God's word. Okay, I'm going to say it. Gender is binary. And gender is determined by God. I want you to hear me say these things. I think it's important for you to hear your pastor say these things. Gender is binary. There is male and female. Gender is not fluid. It is not a, gender is not a social construct. Gender is linked to your biological sex. I can argue this from the scriptures I already have from Genesis 1.27. Quite honestly, I could argue this biologically. You know, forgive me for being obvious and, and maybe a little crass here, but men have male parts and women have female parts. That's the way that God created us. And male genitalia and female genitalia, that's not, that's not gross, that's not wicked, that's not perverted. It's not. It's the way that God has created us. And it's not transferable either. It should not be. God has given them to us, and he didn't make a mistake in giving them to us. Again, I want you to hear this from me. Gender is binary. One of the greatest deceptions being perpetrated on our world right now is people telling each other that gender is fluid, that gender is non-binary, that a person's gender is different from their biological sex. That false narrative is being perpetuated by the media. That false narrative is being perpetuated by Hollywood. That false narrative is being perpetuated by politicians. That false narrative is being perpetuated by educators and higher education. That false narrative is being perpetuated by LGBT activists. And it's a lie. It's a lie that is, here's where the compassion part of courage comes in. It's a lie that is unnecessarily causing pain with people who have legitimate struggles with gender dysphoria. That's the right term for it. There is legitimate struggle with gender. And, and those who struggle in that way, and there might be some in this room right now, they need our compassion. They need our love. They need courageously for us to come alongside of them and speak truth and love in their lives. A few weeks ago, I recited to you the, the Hans Christian Andersen story about the emperor who has no clothes. Do you all remember me talking about that in the book of Romans? And it, just quickly, it's a story about these grifters who go to this king and pretend to make him clothes. And he pretends to wear, although he's naked, he pretends to wear these clothes. And he parades in front of all of his people as the king with these pretend fancy clothes. And all of his people in his kingdom are bullied into saying and to thinking that he's actually wearing clothes. And, and all of that facade gets blasted apart when a little boy says, the emperor has no clothes on. And the story is so ludicrous. It's so, it's so, I mean, it's what makes it fun, right? You might think that it's so crazy. It's so ludicrous. That would never happen in real life. I'm telling you right now, it is happening in our world. People who are obviously male are parading in front of the world and saying, I am female. And if you don't affirm that, you will be ostracized. You will be punished. 
And where are the people out there in the world right now who have the courage to say, no, Bruce Jenner is not a woman. Where are the women out there who want to stand up and say, no, he is not one of us. Where are the people out there who have the courage to say, no, gender is not fluid. It's not changeable. God created us the way that we are created, and we need to hold firm to that. And where are the people that have the courage to say, no, your, your biological sex is not different from your gender identity. There's a reason that I want us to be more brave about this subject, more courageous, not just from the pulpit. I mean, in conversation, in our interaction with the world. I'll give you two reasons that I, I desire this in our church, in Christianity at large. The first reason is this. Christianity has never been a quiet religion, okay? Never. We've always been outspoken. Christianity has always been a evangelizing religion, you know? There's no such thing as Christianity that doesn't evangelize. We were, we were started that way. We've always been that way. We're a proselytizing religion. I know that's like a dirty word in our day. Well, that's what we do. We proselytize. We make proselytes. Christianity, too, has always been a prophetic religion. You know, it has always stepped out of its comfort zone and pointed out the sins of the world. In the Roman Empire, it was the Christians that stood up and said, you know what, those gladiatorial games, that's not right to parade people into the arena and have them torn to shreds in front of people who watch. And we worked and we spoke to remove the gladiatorial games from the Roman Empire. We did that as Christians. It was Christians in the British Empire that looked at the slave trade. People like William Wilberforce, men who had Christian convictions and women too that said, that is not right. That is not true. That is demeaning of the human being. And they worked to change that. Even within this country, you know, I, I know we have, we've had our ups and downs and even confessing Christians at one time in our country's history, supported things like Jim Crow laws and discrimination. But I want you to know it was convictional leaders, Christians like Martin Luther King and others who looked at that and said, that is not right and worked to bring about change. Christianity has never been a silent religion. It's never been quiet about injustice or, or falsehoods that are perpetrated against people in our world. We, you know, I should say this too. We haven't always been right about the things that we've been outspoken about. We've made our mistakes as Christians. Let's own that. But it has not been customary for Christians to be quiet. The other reason that I want us to be brave in speaking out about these issues and holding to the truth of the scriptures is because there is some really twisted stuff that is happening right now in our world and in our country. And if we don't speak out about it, who will? I just read a book this last week, a truly terrifying book called When Harry Became Sally by a scholar named Ryan T. Anderson. And if you want to read a, a chilling account of what's happening in our world right now, in regards to gender and transgender ideology, read that book. Schools and parents are introducing puberty-blocking drugs to young children, making them infertile for life, perpetuating their adolescence into adulthood. 
people who regret having their gender medically changed are being silenced, not able to speak. Medical doctors who refer to gender dysphoria as mental illness, which is what it is. It's an illness. And there's help that can be offered to those who struggle with it. But medical professionals who refer to it as a mental illness are being dismissed as bigots and stigmatized having their clinics shut down. It's terrifying stuff, what's happening. And there's a, there's a concerted effort by schools to indoctrinate your, your children, our children, our people, into thinking that the gender is fluid. And here's the latest example of that. You can look at this on the screen. This is what's called the gender unicorn. And this is being taught uh, in a lot of schools. Advocates for this are using this to teach kids about sex and gender based upon these categories that can change. You have your gender identity, you have your gender expression, you have your sex assigned at birth, and then you have who you're physically attracted to, and then you have your, who you're emotionally attracted to, and it's all put together in this grid to kind of discern who you are. And if you think this isn't mainstream, just go to Facebook right now and pick your gender. There's like 56 options to picking your gender. And this is right now in our face. And if you're not educating your children about that, if you're not out in front of this with your children, then you might find yourself behind the curve and them indoctrinated before you even have a chance to say to them what the Bible has to say about these things. Anderson writes this in his book. You can read this on, this, on the screen. He says, what's at stake in the transgender moment is the human person. If trans activists succeed in their political agenda, our nation's children will be indoctrinated in a harmful ideology and some will live by its lies about their own bodies at great cost to them physically, psychologically, and socially. Lives will be ruined, but pointing out the damage will be forbidden. Dissent from transgender worldview will be punished in schools, workplaces, and medical clinics. Trying to live in accordance with the truth will be made harder. And this is why I like this book, and I would encourage you to read this book, because this, this book is not all just dire prediction. There's hope in it. There's an expectation. We can change this if we stop being bullied into silence. And this is what he says. He says, this does not have to happen. It doesn't have to happen. Everyone can play a role in bearing witness to the truth and ministering compassionately to people in pain. Some of you right now, you, you might say, well, Pastor Tony, you're just trying to scare us. You're just trying to scare us, Pastor Tony. You're right, I am. We should be scared. This is scary stuff, what's going on here. I'm scared. I'll tell you what, though, I'm not defeated. That fear inside of me, I'm praying that the Lord will turn that into courage and bravery to stand up against these kinds of falsehoods. I am not defeated in this because I believe that greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Yes, there are, very, there are even some demonic things that are happening that are perpetrating or being uh, propagated against us and against uh, people regarding gender. But greater is he that is in me, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And you know what? We're going to deal with this crisis and this issue in our generation just like the Christians did in the first century who were being thrown into the arenas and torn to shred by animals. We're going to trust God. We're going to do what's right. And then we're going to thank God that 
He's preparing an eternity for us that will be free from those kind of struggles. Right? Go ahead and write this down as number four. A couple more things here, and then we'll be done. Gender roles, they're not just binary. Gender is not just binary. It's, it's complementary. Gender roles are complementary. And I, I think we should embrace this. Just embrace it. There, there is a sameness in us being human, male and female both. Talked about that, but there is a differentness. We can be the same, but yet also different. We should embrace our sameness, but we should also embrace our differentness. We're more like each other, male and female, than we are like the other animals. We're more like each other than we are like God or like the angels that God created. So we, we want to embrace both that, that sameness and that difference. And, you know, that, that differentness goes beyond just the reproductive tasks. I've talked about that already. The female brings the egg to the reproductive reproductive task. The male brings the sperm to fertilize the egg. I mean, just that, that and that alone is great. I'm so glad that God created it that way, that we need another person to procreate. Let me put it this way. I'm glad I'm not a starfish. All right. I'm glad I don't asexually reproduce. You know, you just cut me in half and I generate new body parts. I'm glad that God didn't do it that way. Aren't you? Aren't you glad to not be a starfish? There, there's, there's something beautiful about that, that we, we come together as male and female in order to procreate. But it's not just that. That complementarity goes beyond reproduction. There's a complementary nature to the way that men and women lead the family. I was listening to a podcast recently, and the person talking in the podcast, he said, we need to stop talking about parenting. We just need to stop using that word as a verb, to parent. Because research, modern research has shown that there is fathering and there is mothering. And they are so different, you should not combine the two into one. Have y'all found that to be true? And, and he was saying that every child needs fathering and every child needs mothering. And in cases where that's not possible, pray for God's grace in those matters to compensate for what's lost. But that's the ideal that God created. That's what God has given us. And there's a distinction in the way that men lead families and father children. And women lead families and mother children. The Apostle Paul talks about this distinction in marriage as well. When he says this, Ephesians 5 verse 22. This is in the way that love is shown between men and women. It says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church his body, and is himself its savior. And then Paul, right after that, talks to men and says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. If you've ever been to a wedding that I've officiated, you've heard me say these things before. When God designed marriage, he gave husbands and wives reciprocal roles in that dynamic. And it's good. And when it's when it's done right, it's a beautiful thing. And God has empowered and actually ordered men to lead their homes and to love their wives as Christ loves the church. And he has empowered and ordered women to submit lovingly to the leadership of their husbands. The Bible teaches that husbands are called to lead their husband, lead their wives. Whew. 
lead their wives. And each, I've said this before at several weddings, this, this might be the most important concept for marriage. We're going to talk more about marriage next week, but, but let me just throw this out there for you guys to chew on this week. This is the most important concept I've ever come across biblically as it relates to marriage. Each person in the marriage is to fulfill the Christ role in that marital relationship. Husbands, you love your wives as Christ loved the church. You be like Christ. Wives, you submit to your husband as Christ does to God the Father. You be like Christ. When that's done right, when authority is not, you know, taken advantage of or, or compromised, in a marital relationship, when a man truly is leading and loving his wife and a wife is truly submitting and in love to her husband, then we, we raise children in a Christ-imitating environment and it's beautiful and it's glorious and it's good. And they learn what it means to imitate, imitate Christ and to know Christ and to be like Christ. Everybody with me? We'll talk more about marriage next week. There's a little sneak peek at what we're going to talk about next week. I'll close with this. And this is the last word on gender, okay? If, if this is the only thing you hear me say today, hear this. Number five, God redeems both men and women. God redeems both men and women. I love reading the Gospels and seeing the ways in which women are emphasized. Have y'all noticed that? If you read the Gospels, I think especially in the book of Luke, as you read that, that the women, the women ha- are a point of emphasis, which, just so you know, that, that's incredibly rare in ancient literature. And, it's, and as you read the Scriptures, especially the Gospels, it's like, you know, this might not be the right way to frame it, but it's like the first, it's like the first feminist wave in the Bible. Because you have women who were, were so key and so prominent in Jesus' birth. You have women who are prominent in Jesus' crucifixion. All Jesus' tough, burly disciples, they were all hiding for their lives. They were scaredy cats. The women stood by Jesus all the way to the cross. They wrapped his body up and they put it in the tomb. And who, did, you know, who, was, the, who was the first person that Jesus revealed himself to after he was raised from the dead? It was Mary. And it's just amazing to me how... Women are so prominent in the scriptures. And also, as you think about Christ after he's raised from the dead, as he presents to the world salvation, you can have your sins forgiven. When Jesus does that, there's no favoritism for men. There's no discrimination against women or men. There's no other forms of discrimination either. Paul says this in Galatians 3. He says, For as many of you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, I don't, I don't want to over-argue this point, okay? You know, Jesus did appoint 12 men as his disciples, to write the scriptures, to lead the churches, to launch the churches. When Paul, we talked about this yesterday at membership class, when Paul went about, 
in the book of Acts and planted churches. He put men in place as elders to lead the church. And so that, that model that we see for the home is also present in the church as men lead over the church and exercise leadership over the church. And, you know, let's be real about that, that distinction between men and women and the way that God has wired us for leadership and for following. I will say this, though. You know, Jesus, he came into this world as a man. He didn't come as a woman. But the only person that was part of Jesus coming into this world was a woman. You realize that, don't you? No man had any part in bringing Jesus into this world. He was born of the Spirit. He was conceived by the Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. So keep that in mind, men, as we talk about complementarity. Jesus appointed 12 men. Yes, Jesus has called men to lead the churches and to lead their homes. That satisfies Jesus when he sees men lead their homes well and sees that distinction between gender being demonstrated by the church body and also in our homes. But don't ever forget this. This idea of submission, it never, ever, implies inferiority in any way. And if men have inferred that from the scriptures, those men are wrong, and they answer to God for that. The Bible says that our sisters in Christ, men, they are equal in dignity, equal in worth, and they are co-heirs with Christ of our eternal reward. Peter calls women joint heirs with men of the grace of life. In other words, God redeems both men and women. Don't ever forget that. I'll close with this. That other close was like a half close. This is the real close. (laughs) And I'm going to be quick. I just want to circle back to what I said earlier about courage and bravery. We need courage to speak the truth about gender in our world right now. We need courage to be compassionate to those who have been traumatized by confusion concerning their gender. That takes courage. And then we need to the courage to speak the truth, not just about gender, but about the gospel. That Jesus Christ came into this world and he died on the cross for the sins of men and women both, and by his blood we can be saved. Do you have courage, Harvesticator, to speak the truth about gender? Do you have courage, Harvesticator, to speak the truth about the gospel? Let's be that kind of church. Let's be that kind of brave in the new world church. Can we now?